0: Why should I live in history, huh? Look, I don't want to know anything anymore. This is a world where nothing is solved. Someone once told me time is a flat circle. Everything we've ever done or will do, we're gonna do over and over and over again. And that little boy and that little girl, they're gonna be in that room again. And again, and again, forever. No, we'll be made to get shot. Welcome to Stroke Session. I'm Leslie the Third, and I'm Jonathan Daniel Brown. And today we are joined by three-time uh, returning guests, Mr. Luke Savage.
1: What's up, guys? What's up, yeah. Luke? Thanks and for coming on again.
0: Yeah, as everyone knows, we bring on Luke anytime we're talking about American politics or Rob Rousseau because Canadians, of course, are the foremost uh, experts on American <laughs> politics. Everybody knows. Well, it. truly, I mean, think about it. Think about all of
2: the wonderful Canadian political figures that are now here in America. I mean, we've got Gavin McInnes. We've got Lauren Southern. Da-
1: David Frum. <laughs> David yeah, Frum, Stephen yes.
2: Molyneux. Uh, Jim Carrey. <laughs> Jim Carrey. You're right. He's, a, you know, he's an avant-garde artist now. Uh we truly are uh, in the golden age of Canadian exports. <laughs> and we're really happy at Struggle Session to have Luke and Rob as our Canadian correspondents.
1: Well, I'm I'm so honored to be in the company of all those people you just named. So, thanks for having me. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> awesome. And
0: today we were, we were trying to think of a way to do a topical show that wasn't just a topical show because we hate those, right? We want to have like in you know, on struggle session, we like to have like a topic and not just be topical, not just talk about the news of the day because that's just so easy and frankly lazy. I mean, and there's a thousand shows, of them. There's a thousand shows doing that. And you know, like we want, we want something to give you something more meaty and juicier. So we came up with a theme. Okay. And today we're going to be talking about the reboot. The reboot of what we've seen in Hollywood and now what we're seeing in our politics and how we're just repeating the same, and regurgitating the same things. Over and over again. And Luke, you're a very good guest for this because you're talking about uh, on your on your great podcast, uh, Michael and us. us. Yeah, you talk about like some of the stuff that is now being rebooted, all those movies from the late 90s and the 00s and those politics from that era as well that we're seeing come back into uh, into existence now.
1: Yeah, well, I'm disappointed because when you said reboot, I thought we were just going to talk about the '90s cartoon show reboot, you know, the one where it was on tsunami inside of a computer. Yeah, (laughs) is there is there tsunami in Canada? There's tsunami in Canada, right? I don't know what that is. Okay, never mind then. There is not tsunami in Canada.
0: Apparently, (laughs) Um, I really hated that reboot show. By I don't
1: know. Yeah, I was (laughs) just I got like five channels growing up, and it was one that uh, like I was I was a rural kid, so we hardly got any TV, and and that one. I guess it seemed kind of like, uh, cool and cosmopolitan it was was cool Leslie's just being mean
0: Leslie's just dumping on your childhood dreams no (laughs) I did not like that show it looks ugly it's (laughs) an ugly ugly show to look at 2D animation is so much better and never more so than when that ugly piece of shit was coming on uh, Saturday AM. I always change the (laughs) time always (laughs) We we are truly in the golden age of reboots because
2: we're now in the process of rebooting things that aren't even over We reboot things that are continuing, like Star Wars, for example. Star Wars hasn't ended, but it's also rebooted a million times.
1: Reboot also, you know, it implies that there's, yeah, that there's been some interruption. Uh, I mean, can that really be said, you know, for when there are like three Spider-Man trilogies in the same decade or like spanning like 10 or 12 years? Is it really being rebooted or is it just kind of uh, continuing in an endless mush? Yeah, what I don't... uh I've thought about that a lot, and and I've thought about that a lot. And what's
2: interesting is is that I look at one of the great media franchises that until recently never cared about reboots. I think about the Bond movies. They just switched actors all the time. Like one day Sean Connery was Roger Moore, and then he was George Lazenby, and and then he was uh, you know uh, Pierce Brosnan, and like skipped Timothy Dalton and you get the idea there are there are many many bonds and nobody cared that one day a bond with somebody else but today we we associate reboots with specific actors specific writers specific tones what a and we create these universes and so in order to reboot the universe we have to i guess wipe out everything you know, nobody gave a shit when one day Judy Dench was talking to Pierce Brosnan, then one day she was talking to Daniel Craig. But today, for the sake of the holy canon that keeps our uh, global fandom together,
0: Judy the has have to have die. explanation. <laughs> Judy Dench has to die. Yeah. Well, you
1: have to... You got Everything yeah. has to be connected. Like, it's not enough to kind of... I mean, it's funny that these things are often referred to as franchises, as if they're, it's just kind of a general template, and then you can kind of relaunch them, because so often what's actually happening... Is you know they have to uh assiduously connect absolutely every minor detail of the original thing. Uh they they have to kind of explain it or explain how the new the, the reboot is contiguous with all of it. So like uh uh Rogue One, which was a move we might have talked about it uh when we get when we talked about Star Wars a few months ago. I can't remember, but you know, at the end of that movie, like they have to explain how even though this movie's finishing, the story is finishing a few hours before the start of Star Wars A New Hope, somehow you haven't heard of any of these characters. Yes. <laughs> and so they have to they have to just kill them all. <laughs> they just have to, having uh, built up all of these characters and ships and kind of storylines, which are supposed to be part of the same universe, they have to wipe the slate clean at the end and pretend that nothing happened.
2: Yeah, this, this fall we rebooted the reboot with Halloween, which was a pre-boot. That was a strange one because it was a sequel to Halloween 1 that disregarded Halloween's 2 through 500. (laughs) And it was like, okay, so all of these movies that Jamie Lee Curtis starred in, they didn't matter. But the first one she starred in, that mattered. And there were nods to the other Halloween movies, but then they were, like, brushed aside as some kind of gag. Like, hey, remember when that happened in this Halloween? It doesn't matter anymore. Because everyone's in on the joke now, and everyone knows all of the formulas of storytelling because we live in a uh, a sewer of content, <laughs> we have to now let people know they're in on the joke in order for them to feel anything at all. And so that's why... Our political powers have to reboot the tensions from the 2016 primary. Otherwise, nobody's well, going to give a shit. <laughs> well, before we
0: jump into the politics, let's talk but about But I do the like the
2: Michael Michael Myers to, to to politics. I'm just proud of myself for that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but before we jump into the politics, let's talk about uh, two literal reboots that people have been talking about lately. Because their awful, awful trailers uh, came out. Uh, Men in Black International Oof. and Hellboy. And the like the more you i watch these things the the like the sicker of feeling i get because you know i'm not a huge men in black or hellboy fan of the original films um but they're okay like there's something i'll watch on TNT TNT or FX or whatever if they're on but these new reboots like there seem to be at least the trailer seems to be, Presenting a vision of the this world and these characters from people who like have no idea what people liked about the originals. Now, can I make a confession? Uh, I really like Men in Black too, a lot. I mean, it's fine. It's not a bad
2: Johnny movie. Johnny Knoxville, Laura <laughs> Flynn Boyle Rosario. It's I think a I pleasure. only saw
1: it once. I, I don't remember much about it except that it was kind of uh, more chaotic. That's all I, I, mean, I remember.
2: Men in Black is the only really. Good Men in Black movie, to be clear. The other two are not good movies. But Men in Black 2 is a fun watch. It's a bad movie that is very... I feel like you have to actively look for a reason to hate it in order to really hate it. If you, This is like the quintessential turn-off-your-brain sequel that is just... It, 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 it does something that it just, I would watch it over a Marvel movie any day. I hated Men in Black 3. And this trailer for Men in Black International, what's weird about it is, first of all, Sony has no idea how to market anything. But second of all, it, it has more references to Thor Ragnarok than Men in Black. Because it's, it's all hinged on
0: the fact that Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth were Thor and Valkyrie. I think it's more less that. I think it's more that like in this film, Tessa Tossum's character is a Men in Black fangirl who right. someone who saw the original movies and is like, oh, this is so cool. So she's way more into it than and knows more about like how the whole system works than Chris Hemsworth does. It's the same. It's basically the same character that Ray is. It's like,
1: like a, it's a fantasy of of uh, effortless nerd confidence.
0: Yeah, effortless nerd confidence that leads you to actually becoming uh, the hero, and even more heroic than the actual hero who has all the experience and done all the stuff. Like you're immediately, just because you know, like have memorized a Wikipedia page. One day you're going to be called upon to actually be like in the Men in Black film next to not Tommy Lee Jones, and it's going to be awesome The
2: original plans for the Men in Black reboot were to do a crossover with 21 Jump Street. I would have really liked to see that because it would have been absolutely insane. This feels like a half measure. This feels like a meta acknowledgement of the influence of Men in Black,
0: which arguably has it has no, a whole <laughs> lot. I don't think it has I don't think it's the most influential <laughs> film it series had its of all time. time. That's the that's the other problem with this is like who is that into men in black that they would give a shit like in 2019 as much as ta- to, it just makes her come her character come across as kind of a loser. What worked about the original movie was that Will Smith was just this tough guy cop who didn't know or believe in any of this sci-fi bullshit and he doesn't buy into it until like a third of the way through the film and that's what make that's where a lot of the laughs uh, come from because Tommy Lee Jones is just his day job to him so he ta- kind of take and so when you see Will react like he does his what Will Smith thing it's not just you know a racist caricature it actually makes sense that he would react this way oh no agent J having his slow immersion into the
2: world of the men in black is what makes the movie in the beginning of the film he takes down a perp who blinks in a really weird way. He blinks sideways. It's and so subtle too. Building. You
0: can you can easily miss it. It's so subtle too. It's just this one subtle thing. It's not a big thing that, you know, changes his world. It's a really small thing that allows him to dive deeper and deeper into it. Or at the at the shooting range, when the only target he shoots is
2: the girl, the little girl holding a quantum yeah. physics book. <laughs> yes. Uh. Everything about it is about the guy. He's smarter than everyone else. He doesn't have to be a fanboy. He just is intelligent and perceptive and knows that something is up and that's what makes him a good agent.
1: Men in Black strikes me as as uh something very of the 1990s in any case, so I'm not sure uh how easy it would be to reboot even at the best of times because it, it very much very much fits within that mold of kind of uh 1990s like era of US global do- dominance, the end of history like the 90s, there were a whole bunch of these shows that were kind of about the American deep state and kind of, you know, UFOs and like all sure. these other things that are very quintessentially uh, of that time. Like, you know, the X-Files is something else that's like, I, I, I don't think you could have Men in Black without the X-Files. So like, oh. I just don't know what a 21st century Men in Black would would be.
0: Well, we know the 21st century X-Files was um, not very good at all. So it, it begs the question, like, why try to reboot this? Uh, were they really leaving? And, and another thing is, like, Men in Black was Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. Chris, uh, which Chris is this? The, is Hemsworth. Hemsworth is not a Will Smith-level, like, personality, actor, movie star. That's well, he's wh- Thor, and he's never been able to
2: play a charismatic role that breaks out of Thor. He's trapped. He's been typecast by the machine, and he's just become—he's Andrew Dice Clay himself. He can't do anything
0: else. Well, I, I just—I just don't think he can do anything else except—he's like not talented. A tall, a ta- he's too <laughs> handsome. Uh, He's—I mean—he's funny. Like he's not a, like a bad, funny actor guy, but like he—I don't yeah, think. Like- but he's no Will Smith. Like, he's not—I don't think he is a true movie star where people, where people will give money just to watch Chris Hemsworth be Chris Hemsworth because that's really just, like, him being the he's
1: not He's not even a Scientologist.
0: Yes. <laughs> but, but we're talking about YouTube
2: Rewind star Will Smith, right? Like, think about what's happened. These guys, these movie stars are devaluing themselves so they can get in on the, the data economy— and as a result, there are no movie stars now. All movie stars have less value than 20 years ago. Do you think do you think like people would go and see a Kirsten Dunst movie the way they would have 10 years ago? Like millions of people saw Marie Antoinette in the early 2000s. That'll never happen again.
1: And it's such a it's such a weird reversion to uh, in some ways to kind of the old, Hollywood studio era Mm -hmm. where you had, you know, these big mega studios that were virtually vertically and horizontally integrated. So they controlled like, uh, they just had m- a monopoly on every level of like production and distribution, and there was this star system that was basically institutionalized through the studios, where they basically owned certain personalities. And now you kind of have that where it used to be that you know uh, a film like Marie Antoinette, you could you could basically market the film around the personality of Kirsten Dunst because she had this kind of distinctive uh, you know uh, persona. Per- per- persona that people liked. And now what you have is is these things are so big and lumbering that the actors actually become inextricable from them. They become defined by, you know, whatever DC or Marvel piece of crap they last appeared in, <laughs> and that's kind of uh, that's kind of uh, the the world that we've returned to almost.
2: Robert Downey Jr. quit after Iron Man three and set out to make an Oscar movie called The Judge. It was a massive flop. Nobody cared. Critics hated it. Nobody saw it immediately signed on to civil war he became iron man and now I-, I know an actor who cannot get booked but he has an instagram character with an agent the character has the agent nobody cares about him he can't do any stand-up comedy but if he is his instagram persona he can make a whole lot of money so we have reached the stage That's of capitalism insane. where people are literally alienated from their own personas <laughs> Well, speaking of which, Hellboy.
0: Hellboy. <laughs> speaking of alienating someone from their persona. OK, so has to be said, what made Hellboy good was Ron Perlman as mm. Hellboy, not necessarily the original IPs, not, you know, uh, Guillermo del Toro. It was Ron Perlman. He was perfect as this character. He It looked cool. It felt cool, felt different. Hellboy's never been my favorite of those movies. I'd much rather take a Blade or Underworld or The Crow over a Hellboy. But, you know, you can't deny, like, how cool Ron Perlman was in it. And when they announced that they were going to be re- uh, rebooting Hellboy, and they were going to have David Harbour as it. And superficially, it seemed like a perfect match. Like, he's big, he's gruff, he can do one-liners. Um, but then the trailer came out and they did not give him any one liners. Uh he doesn't do anything like cool or funny in it. He looks worse than Ron Perlman did with like, you know, 2001 makeup and special effects. He doesn't look as good as Ron Perlman did in 2 in 2019. There is so like there's nothing interesting about it. Like in the old Hellboy like he had Abe Sapien and like a witch character that was on the side. Now it's just like the romantic comedy like like uh, best friends are like his sidekicks and not anything like cool or otherworldly. It's very like very 2018 in a bad bad way.
1: I uh, what what struck me about the trailer. I don't remember if this was true of the original Hellboy because I think I only saw it once. But the thing that uh, I was really averse to was this this tone, which I feel like. Has really been popularized by yeah. things like uh, Guardians, know, of Galax- Guardians of the Galaxy, Galaxy. Uh, maybe Deadpool, things like that. Where it's both, it's very self-serious in a way, but then it's kind of underwritten with this subtext of like, haha. But at the end of the day, aren't we all just a bunch of nerds, like something yeah. like that? And I f- just fucking hate that. I don't. I can't quite put my finger on what that is. And it obviously is very funny and appealing to some people, but I can't stand it.
0: A large part of it is the ironic music, the yeah, money, that's right. money. It's so annoying. Like it's just making me hate all these songs now. <laughs> now you really have
2: to see Gotti then—the worst soundtrack of all time. I watched that last night. Unbelievable. <laughs> uh, Mike McNola really wanted to make this version because he didn't like Guillermo del Toro's take on Hellboy, and I don't know why. Because it, I guess because it wasn't faithful to the source. But my favorite adaptations rarely are entirely faithful to the source. If you want purely faithful, go watch the ultimate cut of Zack Snyder's Watchmen. It's sure it's panel for panel, but it's mostly unwatchable. I mean, there are exceptions like Sin City. I do enjoy that movie. But even that hasn't aged super well because in the end, it doesn't feel like a movie. It feels like a motion comic with human beings as these embalmed puppets. So I think there's this, you know, it's, I think there's something interesting to be said for creative rights where creatives who are upset when their work gets butchered when it's adapted, I I get it. But Hellboy wasn't one of those movies. Hellboy and Hellboy 2 were good. They were not my favorites. I know people that will die by, you know, Doug Jones... is portrayal of Abe Sapien, for example. That's not me, but I, I, the cast is good in this movie. It's got, you know, Mila Jovovich and Ian McShane and Sasha Lane and Tom Hayden Church. It's like talented people. And they all look but, so bored. But they just look, they look bored. They don't look like... The movie definitely, obviously... I mean, you can't get a budget like the one Del Toro got for their first two Hellboys. The, the movie industry isn't in the position to do that, but they could at least try to make it seem... A little more, you know, epic than a show on the DC Universe
0: streaming service. Know, yeah, it like, really doesn't look, like, aside from, like, the fight where he's fighting the giant in the big field, there's yeah, nothing There's nothing in this that doesn't look like it could have been, couldn't have been on, a, like, a Netflix show.
1: So, something I was thinking about um, when you guys said you want to talk about reboots uh, is, you know, I've been re-watching uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, and I think that is living proof that um, you know re- reboots like there's not they're not there's nothing intrinsically wrong with them like there have been past eras of reboots that are perfectly uh, perfectly good um, like Star Trek: The Next Generation took this kind of you know uh show from the late 60s that had this cult following and had picked up this big fandom in the decades since it had uh, been taken off the air and it and it relaunched it for a new generation and after two or three seasons really surpassed um the original one and now the bulk of kind of output in the star trek universe is uh is you know post next generation really owes itself to the next generation, even if people still like the original series. I mean, now it's. I mean, I. I don't. I'm not. I don't like Star Trek uh, Discoveries. I think they've kind of run out of. Uh, I don't think it's very good. They've kind of run it's out. Bad. of bad.
2: They fucked up the Klingons.
1: There's a lot. There's a lot of stuff. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff wrong with it. There's a really good. It's um, a really good article in Current Affairs called "The Dismal Frontier" that I think explains uh, a lot about why it's bad. But um, yeah, like reboots don't have to be terrible uh if they use if they use the original uh premise as kind of a template and then they actually reimagine it for a new generation that's one thing but so often that's not what uh that's not what's actually going on here the you know the 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 original uh artifact is sort of just uh dogmatically implied or applied as kind of a um like a really rigid uh, formula, and then, uh, you know, and then uh, basically ends up being a piece of fan fiction.
2: It's interesting that you point out that so many of these reboots feel like fanfics now, because that's where Hollywood is now looking. They're, look, they're just jacking stuff from fandoms and fanfic and repurposing it. And they look online to see, you know, what relationships fans want because of shipping. They look on Wikias to see what fans are passionate about. And they, frankly... They care too much because if you only listen to consumers and you don't care about the quality of what you're putting out, then all you have left is essentially the American equivalent of, like, you know, a Japanese idol anime. (laughs) It's uh, If you're just pandering to your audience and you're not making anything cool, then all you have is, I mean, it's a Ponzi scheme. It's not a show. It's not a story.
1: And, and but I so, suppose
2: so, that's how television lasts by hooking them in forever. I mean, like to- supernatural. Totally,
1: and like so much of this has to do with the what the business model is, especially when it comes to these big blockbusters, because essentially they're so expensive now, uh, they they can't fail, so they have to be as broad as possible. Like with uh, with kind of middle budget cinema, which as far as I can tell doesn't really exist, exist anymore. Um, there was some room for error, and the blockbusters used to kind of subsidize. Um, the kind of actually, you know, the actually good stuff, um, right, you know, and the sort of stuff where the the actors and producers and directors and writers had some creative agency they could apply. And now it's just like, you know, th- these things have to be uh, integrated at every level. And every every scene has to both, you know, you have to be able to merchandise it, it has to work in a video game, um, serialized everything. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's TV. And big movies are just TV shows now. Speaking of, this is something that just surprised me today. Um, Apparently, the Bumblebee movie is out and in theaters right now.
1: This is like uh, it's it's some kind of Transformers related thing. Yes,
2: it's the prequel that takes place in the eighties. It's made by
1: Bumblebee sounds like a Pixar vehicle. Yeah, to
2: me. well, they're, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to Pixar. They're trying to make a Transformers movies that actually is for kids, which makes sense. I don't know why Michael Bay decided <laughs> but to.
1: But there's but there's lots of hidden jokes for adults. Am I right?
2: I hope so. I mean. <laughs> it's directed by Travis Knight, who made an amazing animated film called Kubo and the Two Strings, and I believe he also worked on um he also worked on a movie called Paranorman brilliant animator don 't know how he is as a live action director, also the son of Phil Knight, of course of nike and uh I'm wearing Nikes right now, and uh, I feel bad because these were definitely made by Malaysian children. <laughs>
1: Wow, I didn't realize you guys had uh, such lush product placement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's how we do our ads. Like... <laughs> so we've had Sony and Nike. You guys have to tell me how you do it. <laughs> yeah, we nag
0: them. We talk so much shit about it, and then we say they give us money, <laughs> and we make them give us money. They're our pay pigs, actually. <laughs> oh no, I no, they. I'm really comfortable in these shoes.
2: It's the it's terrible. Shame on me. Um, I'm wearing them, but. It is what it is. I'm a monster. <laughs> so they're going to have the Nike kid make the Transformers movie because he was raised into the world of business. He understands franchises. He understands product placement and merchandising, even before he makes a thing. It's a smart business decision to hire a creative from the world of marketing and and, uh, and executives. It's It sucks, though. I don't want to... S- it's a shame because uh, long-term... There's going to be no room for creatives except for the children of global wealth. I remember last year, there was a movie that half of my friends were raving about called Nocturnal Animals. And it made me a little uncomfortable because it was directed
0: by Tom Ford, like uh, the suit guy. But here's the thing. Tom Ford is the single made one of the best films i've ever seen in my entire life he mm-hmm. he actually like understands film probably better than any t- first time director i've ever uh seen because a, he's talented a without single, a, doubt. a single man was absolutely absolutely Stun- Amazing. Uh, so I, I stand Tom Ford. He's like it's not like that. Any of these rich people, all of these rich people are bad. Um, uh, and he's not like making his let his son direct these movies. Like he's actually doing it himself. So Tom Ford, Tom Ford is actually good. Yeah, Studio Laika, like which is, I mean,
2: I hope, I hope that that animation studio pays people well. But if it's judging by his father's business practices, <laughs> I, you know probably not. <laughs> All right. So
0: moving on to the political reboots. Um, I know, um, Luke, you have a few uh, thoughts on this, but right now what we've been seeing in the past few weeks is people trying to give us a new, newer, younger, wider Obama in the form of Mr. Beto O'Rourke. Um, which is kind of weird, because um, last I checked, Obama actually won his Senate seat instead of losing it. And, you know, he actually had, like, a presence on the national stage even a couple of years before he ran, while Beto is just, you know, like, what really disturbs me was the article that basically said, like, all these former Obama staffers are kind of glomming on to Beto and think that he should run in 2020. And my, my real thing with that is Obama already ran one and was president for eight years and he accomplished jack shit. So why should I get excited about Beto given being given the opportunity to do the same thing?
1: I think, I think the excitement from those people is very instructive, um, because it, it shows that like for them, uh, the, the point of politics is, uh, you know, is to, uh, experience a particular kind of sensation, a particular kind of excitement. Um, For a lot of those people, uh, they never left 2008. Um, You know, politics is just an endless quest to return to that, you know, shining city on the hill that was, you know, change we can believe in. Um, And I think that extends beyond just the Beto O'Rourke, uh, the Beto O'Rourke situation. I mean, it's it's a real embarrassment of riches in going into 2020. I don't know. Uh, I usually have strong opinions, but I don't know who I'm going to support as a a uh, host of an ironically branded Michael Moore-themed podcast. I mean, is it going to be Beto O'Rourke? Is it going to be Uncle Joe Biden? Is it going <laughs> to be John Kerry? Kristen um,
2: Gillibrand?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, Kamala Harris. There's, there's so it's a real it is real Eric Garcetti. Nobody's. I'm. 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 I'm, I'm, a, I'm most looking forward to uh, what I hope happens is some sort of unity ticket. And uh, I think third times a charm for Joe Lieberman. So uh, you <laughs> yeah. know, pair pair him, and you know maybe he runs as a dem. He's the Democrat, and With maybe Romney. Uh, Romney is his, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and John McCain's you know dying wish to uh, have uh, you know the worst presidential ticket ever ever created by the American <laughs> ruling class can finally be realized. You know.
2: Ask ask the Israelis in the early two thousands how creating a centrist unity party between Likud and Labor worked out. Ask them how that ended up. Uh, spoiler alert: the far right took it over in five fucking seconds and dissolved the whole thing.
1: And uh, ask uh, you know ask Emmanuel Macron right? His whole um, his whole uh, shtick right was to create this new political party, uh, create this aura of novelty. By building a new political party, a quote unquote party that was assembled from you know the 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 essentially the more uh, centrist wings of both of the two French political blocks or the the main ones, you know, and then and and that was how to that was how they created this uh, supposedly dynamic new force in French politics. Although uh, it's not going very well.
2: No, I, it turns out when you uh, tax the poor and give breaks to the rich. People get angry, and France has a history of cutting people's heads off for this stuff, so they get very theatrical when they get angry. I I, I watch this shit sometimes, and I go, like, if it weren't for some of these dumbass right-wing people in, in the middle of this, I, I'd be really, I'd be pumped, I'd be proud, but I truly have no idea how any of that shit's going <laughs> to fall out.
0: So we, we kind of touched on it. Like, we've already started the 2020... Um, presidential campaign. Like, how fucking dark is that? And so far... We had the Democrats at least have nothing. Trump, I think, is doing fine. I think he's doing great. He made a tweet today where he reposted his Emmy appearance with Megan Mullally, where he sung Green at Acres. Like, that's exactly what he should be doing at this point. It was great. Um, I think it'll give him a big surge in the polls because it's just so goddamn funny uh, that he ever did that. And that now all these people pretend to hate his guts and pretend <laughs> to be like a political resistance to him when all they did was hobnob with him for decades
2: megan Mullally is is uh she's 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 a hollywood treasure but it is funny (laughs) it's just so funny to watch so many people who are on his show shit on him it's funny watching tom arnold go apoplectic and create like a fake show where he promises to stop trump and doesn't the only people who actually could take down trump with any of the 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 apprentice stuff is Mark Burnett and Mark Burnett is now working for some Israeli company and it and does not give a shit. He loves Trump. Uh,
1: I, I also, is- I also think the, the, when, when people talk about taking down Trump, right? Like there's, there's so much to unpack there about what that actually means in practice, right? Because it's possible like Trump's, you Know Trump in the grand scheme of things, like, I mean, he he lost the popular vote, right? He's not like some hugely popular figure, he's got very low approval ratings. The Democrats could maybe blow it by running some you know, uh, cookie cutter, you know, corporate Democrat. The Democrats tra- will
0: definitely blow it by, Bill, yeah. But, yeah. Continue. but please continue. But,
1: but I mean, yeah. but I mean, like, you know, t- the fact is, Trump is very unpopular, so they could potentially uh run somebody. And, and win and then take that as validation that actually people really like what they're saying. And they really like this kind of uh, very bland, uh, you know, corporate friendly uh, message. Um, I mean, in the in the midterms just now, I mean, uh, obviously, it's nice to see the GOP lose, lose all those seats. But what was the Democratic message in the midterms? You know, like they were running all these cops and kind of national security, ex-national security people, just like in uh, 2006 when they took back the House then. Um, And I mean, if you were to kind of distill their narrative, it would be something like they want to restore national dignity and honor. And I think for a lot of people, you know, going back to uh, the theme of reboots and you know, the the uh, emotional investments people are already making in figures like Beto O'Rourke. Defeating Trump is just literally about defeating him once at the ballot box. There's no sense that there's an overriding consensus that's rotten that produced Donald Trump, of no, which Donald Trump is never. symptomatic. It's like we just have to, there's just a reset button somewhere that we can push and we can make it all go away.
2: Right. Look at the look at the Democrats who called for impeaching Trump during the midterms who have changed their mind as soon as they ended. As soon as the midterms ended, all of that impeach Trump talk just stopped. Very funny how that works. It it turns out they actually don't want to impeach the guy. Why impeach a man when you can fundraise off fear of him for the next three to six years?
1: It's uh, it's incredible for me to me. It's incredible to me to reflect on how much darker the American political situation would be if Bernie Sanders just didn't exist or if he <laughs> hadn't if, if he hadn't if Bernie Sanders hadn't uh, run and achieved the success he did in 2016. I just don't know oh my God. Uh, where I would where I would find uh, any optimism.
0: Jeez, like uh, but good but thank you for bringing up Bernie Sanders because another yes. reboot that is happening right now is the <sighs> 2016 um, Democratic primary. We're doing it again, folks. It's happening again. Isn't that the line from uh, Twin Peaks? This is much creepier than Twin Peaks because basically all the dipshits and shitheads who shanked Bernie at every single opportunity, who smothered his campaign in the crib before it had a chance to get real momentum fucking and, lies. and save us from from Donald Trump. That's, what they, that's how they would phrase it. Um, they did all that, all those same accounts, all those same people are doing a fucking in they're saying the same old he's too he doesn't know how to talk to black people so, did you
1: guys uh did you guys see the uh the poll the other day that clara jeffrey yes. was circulating right and uh and and which joyanne reed also uh boosted i of believe course. it was the same poll and she described the sampling which was, was of course of uh you know donors and and you know democrat democratic party apparatchiks uh, and she described it as uh, a poll of politically active women of color. <laughs> yes,
0: of course, of course. Like Clara Jeffrey, like, she she is the editor in chief of an actual magazine that is printed that people pay money for. N- named mm-hmm.
1: for a great American of radical. Mother
0: Jones, well. Mother Jones Magazine. This is not just some random shit poster. This is not some bored wine mom. This is an actual person with real influence and power who could be doing and talking about anything she could be promoting even she could even just if, it, if she doesn't like Bernie Sanders she could at least be boosting and promoting another candidate but instead she's like basically creating a fake uh, uh she's uh falsifying this poll in order to say see uh black people don't like Bernie Sanders this is proof it's it is complete and she won't you know back down won't correct herself even though like tons of people have yelled at her and told her that you completely misinterpreted this poll even the original article that she you know was quoting had all this context in there it wasn't like she was confused the original article does say that this is a poll from one special interest group that only that covers women of color not black women women of color those are two different things um who are donors influencers etc etc not you know a a big poll of random voters to give a real idea of what the average voter thinks about these candidates. It was like, no establishment, establishment women of color, like uh, Kamala Harris, uh, more than Bernie Sanders. That shouldn't really be a shock uh, to anyone. Two years ago, These pundits, these political lobbyists, these
2: consultants, these opinion writers, they had power. They had people in in power. They had a a White House that was occupied by Democrats. They lived comfortably in liberal cities. They felt that they were comfortably going to win. They got their asses kicked. So what is so infuriating is the cockiness that they had two years ago has returned. They have no sense of, of any sense of what has come to pass over the last no few years. Shame. No shame. No shame. No humility. No hat in hand. No, we fucked up. Robbie Mook writing editorials again. Like, why would you ever leave your house, Dude,
0: Like how you, how I don't know how these people like show themselves, their faces in public after the crushing and humiliating defeat of everything they believed in, as personified by Hillary Clinton. Especially when people like you, JDB, were telling them what was going to happen. You were telling them that Mm -hmm. they are the Clintons are going to blow it. Broke my brain. (laughs) Trump is going to win. But these are the people who who and now they're coming back. They're rebooting themselves basically it's, it's not even they're basically and saying the same shit they said before the same f- basic fud about how black people are like it's so funny because they try to say on one hand black people are black p- Bone of the democratic party black women are the backbone of the democratic party but they also try to imply that if bernie sanders wins black people aren't going to turn out to vote black women won't turn out to vote they're just going to all abandon the party if bernie sanders is nominee is their implication while at the same time saying they're the most we're the most reliable people to vote for democratic party and there's a there's a fucked up thing that the democrats are trying to
2: do and this is something that that I've talked about with Leslie a few times, but it's not something I've I've talked about on the podcast before. I really do think the Democrats are trying to make relationships between... White minorities like – or not minorities but like uh, groups that are, are different than the white mainstream like Jews and black people. There, there's a clear attempt to create racial tensions between Jews and black people, Hispanic people and black people. Like they are pulling racial and gender dividing lines in service of neoliberalism and they pretend it's uplift but what they're really doing is ugly by, by claiming that uh, – you know, the majority of black women support Kamala Harris's policy over the other policies of, say, someone left of her, it creates, I mean, first of all, it's designed to promote a cult of personality so she can uh, win the primary, which she won't. But second of all, it's designed to create tensions between, by, by, by essentially saying, if you don't support Kamala Harris, you are betraying the will of black women. It's designed to make guilty white liberals vote against what they know is the right thing for all people in an attempt to be progressive towards women of
0: color and it's shameful well, they're using because, this they're using just using black people as a tool and yeah. a cudgel to promote their um political agenda which is what the democratic party has always uh done it's not new, <laughs> always but it's just as ugly will do like i like one the what really tells, they really told on themselves this week too with the um, Russia Gate reboot, which uh, mm. you know, remember we forgot about Russia Gate like around the election, but now it's back and now their new thing is basically they're repeating the same thing where Russia was trying to influence black people to not vote for Hillary Clinton. Russia took out uh, Instagram ads to say that the Clintons were bad to black people. Implication being that any black people who didn't support Hillary Clinton, even from a principal leftist position um, were tools of Russia and so that that's meant to discredit people like me, people yeah. like Brianna Joy Gray like all these you know um, I would say great great black thinkers uh, online uh, some of the best posters online and basically say that we're all tools of Russia and real black people and to also dismiss all the black people who didn't vote like instead of trying to win them over they're basically saying that they're all you know dipshits and dupes and marks uh, who fell for like Instagram ads that almost no one uh, remembers ever ever seeing in the first place.
2: And by the way, dur- during the height of the Cold War, you better believe that r- uh, the fear of said the, the Russian communist was used to stop civil rights activities. No,
0: they co- they did they did the same the same thing was done by liberals during this time. Uh, our liberals, or right wingers, saying that you know it's the communists mm-hmm. who are stirring up black folk. It's always it's the Russia who's stirring up black folk. No, it's racism that stirs up there
1: have been there have been uh there have been stories about how you know russia is using memes to promote black lives matter and things like that um and i mean that is that is just pure like it's it's sort of like digital mccarthyism yes. you know mm-hmm. um but i was gonna say you know 2016 and you know riffing further on the theme of reboots because there's gonna be more uh, things like this ahead, but 2016 really gave us so many innovations in how to use kind of, uh, how to twist, you know, the language of, you know, emancipation, uh, towards, uh, you know, uh, privileged, uh, privileged, you know, business friendly ends. I mean, uh, the, the, the whole narrative among kind of the democratic mainstream during those primaries was that, um, Hillary Clinton this, you know, fairly orthodox machine politician who has, you know, along with her husband become a multimillionaire uh with, you know, speaking fees to banks and and other interest groups uh, that she was the actually she was kind of rebooted herself um you know, post 2008, when she was the candidate of hardworking uh, white people, yes. which was her own campaign message, um, as as opposed to Obama, who was heavily implied was the candidate of uh, those lazy uh, other people. Um, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton was reinvented in 2016 as this lifelong champion of the op- oppressed. Meanwhile Bernie, meanwhile, Bernie Sanders, yeah, meanwhile, Bernie Sanders, um, this, you know, working class, uh, Jewish guy from Brooklyn who spent his entire life fighting on the side of unpopular causes, stealing uh, was, electricity. Was, he was, that's right, <laughs> yeah. he, he was, he was turned into this, this avatar of like white male privilege. Yeah. Right. You know, and it didn't and matter that his, his Frank- base was essentially like young women. Uh, that's the that's the narrative those people went for. And in in new and I'm sure even more grotesque ways, in the months ahead, they're going to figure out how to double down on, on all those narratives and create new, even worse ones.
2: I'll tell you what they're going to do. They're going to use the Israeli lobby. The Israeli lobby has intentionally been sabotaging Jewish communities for the last 10 years in service of basically the right-wing policies of Netanyahu and his cronies. Since Sharon died, it's been a power vacuum. And when Madoff... I mean this is a little complicated, but Madoff was essentially financing so many Jewish nonprofits and charities that when it fell apart, people like Sheldon Adelson came in and filled that financial gap and pushed a lot of these organizations towards right-wing thought. And so what's so frustrating is you saw it in 2016. You saw Jewish communities shun Bernie Sanders by and, – and they would use the Democratic Party to say things like he wasn't Jewish enough or he didn't support Israel enough and as, as if that was a barometer of what made a good Jew if you supported Israeli policy. It's infuriating. Well, and then, of
1: course, there was the the other thing that happened where, uh, you know, and, you know, speaking of Clara Jeffrey, did you guys see that? Uh, it was, it was uh, I think she was, uh, it, it, ca- it came up yesterday on Twitter. It was from 2016, yeah. but she tweeted that weird, it was like, it's such a strange image. Like, you really have to see it for yourself, but it's kind of this anti-Semitic uh, caricature, and she just captions it, Bernie Sanders, aka Chromo the Great. Yeah. Now I don't even know what that means. I do. But- I
0: do. Uh, so to be fair to Clara, who is a complete and other stupid, pe- stupid <laughs> piece of shit. Um, she that is a that is from a children's book um, th- na- uh, about a wizard named Cromo the Great, drawn by a Jew- drawn by a Jew- Jewish illustrator. But it's still—I uh, don't know about that one, Chief—to post that during the presidential debate to say or that. What, what
1: about what about that? Uh, what about that tweet that, that's about how uh, you know Bernie or Hillary Clinton is the modern Jesus betrayed by yeah. Jesus? I saw that. And then you know, in brackets or perhaps triple parentheses, aka Bernie Sanders. <laughs> yes, I mean,
0: <laughs> which uh, was retweeted by Deborah Messing. I yeah, a just Jewish the other day. Woman.
2: She's Jewish. Like that's what blows my mind is we're seeing we're seeing
0: a huge, huge
2: cultural gap between wealthy Jews and non-wealthy Jews, and there aren't that many Jews. People think there are a lot of Jews. There's 12 million Jews on the planet. There are more Mormons. We are a, and I say we, even though I don't believe in the religion, but I am a Jew. It's weird. It's complicated. It's a half-ethnicity, half-religious thing that you can't really escape. It's like the mob. (laughs) And uh, once you're in, you're in. Uh, uh, But... uh, What's so frustrating is that these political attacks from rich Jewish communities that are often connected to APAC-affiliated groups are designed to create chaos within the community and turn people against each other, and it's happening. I have never seen, like you know, the 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 Jewish synagogue I went to. I've never seen. I still know people who go there and like everyone's divided. Everyone's fucked up and that's exactly how, you know, these politics work. It's pure divide and
0: conquer. There's nothing else to it. Well, here's how we bring everyone together. uh, JDB... Um, if you may not know this, but Beto has long been a supporter of APAC. Every time they call him up, he he <laughs> he he trots down there. Their Facebook feed is just filled with Beto. Uh, yeah, he pictures. was he
1: was tweeting about he was tweeting about them just the other day.
0: Yeah, he loves APAC, and I think if you want to, you know, unite this, you know, fervent left wing um, brought forth by Bernie Sanders, and you know this fervent right wing of the Democratic. Party, Party that just, you know, loves, loves to be in power and doesn't really have any, you know, real political leaning whatsoever. Then, you know, you can all find a vessel in Beto O'Rourke, I think. Well, you can be whatever you want to be. I mean, Beto, people talk
2: about Bernie Sanders as if he's some magical messiah who can solve all of your problems sarcastically. By people, I mean centrists and right-wingers. They talk about Bernie as if we treat him like he's some pie-in-the-sky fantasy guy who wants to wave a wand and absolve us of our debts and break up the banks and magic... We're accused as leftists of magical thinking all of the time by people who project the most bizarre shit On O'Rourke. I mean, obviously, at this point, we have the famous um, Leia, what was it, the the Media Matters lady who talked about how much Beto makes her cum or whatever. You guys know what I'm talking about, right?
1: Oh, yeah i mean that that tweet gives me nightmares oh i I, think about it
0: i I think i blocked it out i know that exists i have you know i put that into a room deep into my mind palace. please
1: don't read it yeah (laughs) i put that deep in
0: my mind palace so i could not uh see that but but
1: but you're you're absolutely right that there's a there i mean that that whole narrative of how the bernie sanders thing is a personality cult um i mean the, the whole point of Bernie Sanders the reason uh his his project uh really caught fire in the way it did was precisely because it's not a personality cult it's a program um and it's true that uh to some extent that program is now synonymous uh with Bernie but it's it's you know he is the the least likely figure to be at the center of a personality cult he has this kind of um, this kind of anti charisma that <laughs> that makes him charismatic you know yes. he's not the typical you know overly polished focus grouped um uh you know type of beltway politician and that's precisely what people like about him and you know if you were to ask people you know who are his supporters what do you associate with him they would probably tell you things like medicare for all free college things like that like actual programmatic uh things um, whereas, you know, if you were to ask, uh, the same question about, uh, you know, a more orthodox type of democratic politician, you'd probably get a bunch of stuff about, you know, their personality, you know, the personality traits and, and like funny things they did and how they, you know, uh, they looked good in that one picture with, with, you know, uh, playing with children or like whatever the, whatever the, the, the cute thing is supposed to be, you know? And, um, <laughs> I think that, uh, that speaks, uh, that speaks, uh, by the way, that wasn't a joke. I'm serious. Sure, remember, do you remember that? Do you remember the whole thing about, um, I mean, do you remember like all those photos of, uh, just Obama like looking really cool and cute playing with children in the white house. He had a
2: Buzzfeed article every day. That was was like him with a dog or him with a kid. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, and it, and it, and it looked great, right? Like Obama looks really good in, in pictures with children. And he looks, he looks really cool in a lot of like coming off of air force one and sunglasses or whatever, but like looking cool uh, or looking cute is not the same thing as like actually doing anything. And, uh, and, and you know, political persona is built around things like that i think are much more accurately described i mean cult is a str- is a very strong word, and I don't want to overuse it, but I mean, that's certainly a personality-based type of politics, whereas I think it would be much harder to make that charge about uh, somebody like Bernie Sanders. And the
0: scary part about all this, of course, is that there are real stakes involved And when someone like a Clara Jeffrey or any of these pundits, Jamel Bowie, um, he's one of them too, like, there's an endless list of these pundits who got 2016 entirely wrong thought that just telling everybody how woke and Bay hillary clinton was was going to work and get everybody motivated to vote like none of these people have learned a lesson that if you actually want to motivate people to inspire them you actually have to put a politician that's going to say i'm going to do something for you focus on material
2: needs of people it's the most obvious thing in the world Yes, it's the most obvious, and thing.
0: and that's why they don't want to do it because Bernie Sanders might raise their taxes 0.01 percent, basically.
1: And not to not to quash the uh, the the whole theme of reboots, but I think uh, a pet peeve of mine is when people say, you know, stop relitigating the 2016 primary because because I don't think that a lot of the time that's what people are doing. Like, okay, I get it; people want to move on from like some of the very granular, extremely online debates that, that you know, that, that, that happened in, in well, 2015, yeah, 2016.
2: Me. I'm offline.
1: <laughs> but I mean, I get that people want to move on from that, but it, it, it has to be said that the reason why a lot of those debates, at least on a macro level, are still with us isn't because people are just pathologically relitigating this one political event. It's because that particular political event, um, opened up a very serious ideological chasm, um, you know, between liberals and the left. And that's not a chasm that's been closed yet. And it's not going to be closed until there's some resolution to a lot of those, uh, you know, a lot of those debates. Um, and so I, I, you know, this notion that, um, if, you know, Sanders runs again, uh, and, you know, they're kind of, uh, similar debates happening, uh, around that, um, uh, you know, or, around the primaries, the notion that that's kind of just a, a reboot or something I think is, uh, is, is imperfect.
2: If there's one thing I think we all can agree on, it's that the Overton window itself needs a reboot. The, the American Overton window has been pushed so far to the right that, that Bernie Sanders' democratic socialism, which is really closer to Brandeis liberalism or Roosevelt liberalism, not like the thinnest margin of socialism that is possible in America, is what Bernie Sanders' socialism represents. And if that is somehow communist extremism, then we are just so out of whack and out of rhythm that we have completely lost touch with reality as a nation.
1: I mean, I do think there is something genuinely radical about uh, Sanders, which because, you know, that that, um, that's this this whole this idea of, of, um, you know, we heard this in 2016, that it's it's uh, his program is just the New Deal, or it's just European social democracy. And the thing is that uh, the the I do think the way that he uh, defends and kind of articulates his program is also very important this language of um the people against the ruling class this kind of left populism that he uses i mean there are european politicians some of them nominally on the right who would you know defend a they would they would be supportive of a universal healthcare system things like that but they are absolutely not using that type of language they're not trying to mobilize the same type of um you know political subjectivity that or, or tap into the same type of political subjectivity that Bernie Sanders is and I, I think that's kind of the most um the most radical thing about him is that he actually names the enemy he points the finger squarely at uh global capital. You know, the global capital and the washington establishment and he says the reason uh the reason your wages have stalled is because of these people the, and the you know the media uh, is too deferential to corporate America, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I think um I think uh even though there are it, it, it can be said in some ways that his program is uh yeah is is just kind of a reflection of 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 how far that, that it's radical as a reflection or it's seen as radical as a reflection of how uh far you know the Overton windows moved to the right, I do think um that is uh, something that is genuinely kind of radical about him. It's a
2: great point.
0: Well folks it is happening again um this is just the start it's to it's the final months of 2018 we will be talking about these same goddamn things marching (laughs) towards the human extinction that is inevitable due to climate change which no matter are you ready for the next 20 months no, no matter who we elect is going to, you know, come and decimate us all and we deserve it. Um, so just, you know, thank you so much, Luke, for uh, coming on and talking (laughs) about this.
1: Yeah. On that note, happy holidays guys.
0: (laughs) Yes.
2: Merry Christmas. (laughs) Happy post Hanukkah. It's over now. Uh, Hanukkah actually is not an important holiday at all. It's just a... It, yeah, I'll get into it another time. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Uh, it's Jewish Christmas for Americans and Europeans. It's a, It's just a present holiday. But I will say that if no matter what you celebrate, we appreciate you hanging out and listening to Struggle Session. And uh, thanks so much.
0: Peace.